Experiencing the news each day can feel like a journey. With Up First from NPR, it doesn't have to be. Welcome to 15 easy minutes of breaking news, clarity on international and national affairs, all handed over not from some floating voice in the sky, from us, Layla, A, Steve, and me, Rachel. Start your day informed. Subscribe to Up First wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, my name is Sonali Dev, and my book is called The Vibrant Years. Known for her Bollywood-style love stories, author Sonali Dave is passionate about creating complex, lifelike female characters who defy the stereotype of Indian femininity. Her newest novel, The Vibrant Years, was selected as the first book to be published through Mindy's Book Studio, a boutique story studio created by Mindy Kaling. The book follows three generations of Indian-American women as they each navigate dating and independence at three very different stages of life. I spoke with Sonali Dave about breaking stereotypes at every age, how Bollywood films influenced her, and how she crafted some laugh-out-loud moments. I'm Beth Golay from KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network. This is Marginalia. So your website describes you as someone who writes, quote-unquote, heartwarming stories about families without boundaries. And the vibrant years seems to absolutely fit into that category. Can you give our listeners a description of the novel? Absolutely. Uh, First, thanks for having me. So The Vibrant Years is the story of three generations of Indian American women on the modern dating scene together. But it really isn't uh, so much about dating as it is about how far women have come over the years. And I feel like the modern dating scene is um, a really ironic allegory for how far we've come. Because when I think of, you know, my grandmother's dating life, my mother's dating life, mine and my daughter's, that's as much distance as you can have anyone cover, right? So I think it's a great uh, snapshot of just women across the world and where we've come in terms of choices, the choices that are now available to us, and they don't necessarily make life easier. But here we are. So it really, to me, was an exploration of everything I think being a woman means to me personally, and historically, you know, from the days of my grandmother to the day of my daughter, who's 21. You know, as you mentioned, the book follows these three generations of women in somewhat similar dating situation. But maybe we should drill down on these women and and let's talk about how their situations compare. So yes, the other thing I think to give this a little bit of background is up until now, I've seen what I've seen older women be on the page or in stories has always felt like a cardboard stereotype to me. So as we get older, I think you know, we, we become almost these cutouts and we lose some of our completeness as a human. So we either turn into these, you know, salty piss and vinegar grandmother stereotypes or then these, you know, benevolent, gracefully wise older woman, you know, trope. But I have a lot of female friends in their 60s and my own mother and my grandmother, they did not automatically just lose all their sexuality or they didn't automatically just lose all their desires right they didn't suddenly become this you know this shadow of themselves that I continuously saw on the page and you know on film and 
I think this is a little bit of me reclaiming what I think I'm going to be when I grow up and what I see around me and what I saw my mother be and things like that. So Bindu is very much a woman in her 60s who is still very much in touch with you know, her sexuality owns herself as a human being with desires, but someone who has, because of the conditions under which she grew up and the lack of choices, has chosen to become a person who has put away a whole lot of her desires. So it's this almost kind of tightrope walk that she does between, you know, owning her personal freedom and really trying to forget the pieces of her that she's lost which I think is a very universal story of women across the board. We're continuously, I think, trying to walk that tightrope between our personal freedom and what we're expected to be for everyone, for our family, the perfect mother, the perfect daughter, the perfect wife, that whole thing. And so much of our identity, I still feel, is tied to what we are to other people. And yet we are in a place where now we're continuously told we can have everything we want, we can you know, be everything we want, I don't think I know a woman who has not walked that struggle, who has not lived that struggle. So to me, really, uh, Bindu was that, was all that's lost and needs to be reclaimed. And I think that putting her in a place where she's, because she is someone who was widowed at 40. And, you know, the idea of dating hasn't been a reality to her for 25 years now. And then suddenly she finds herself in this place where it is a possibility. And what does that mean? You know, and then Ali, I think, is is the closest to me in age. And so Ali is someone who has, again, made the journey of a lot of women my age, you know, who have had the opportunity to fight for things that people before them didn't have. She works for a TV station and she is a brown woman and living in a place where, you know, a, a brown woman on television wasn't a thing that was possible until now. So here we are in these spaces where we believe things are possible and yet those things are still so hard, it's often like banging our head against a wall internally in our own families as well as externally. And so that's Ali's struggle. And Kali, of course, is this generation of women who literally looking at it from the outside have no taboos, right? Who who everything should be so easy for And yet we see our daughters and our girls, you know, still coming up against all of these internal and external challenges, which we feel like we fought so hard, you shouldn't even have them anymore. And yet, you know, they haven't disappeared for young people. And so then what does it mean to be a young woman in today's day and age? I think that kind of is the story of the three women. You know, I think Bindu and Ali and Kuli have a a remarkable family dynamic. They're extremely close and they're almost like best friends rather than a, a mother, daughter-in-law, granddaughter. And I wonder if you were inspired by any of your own female relationships. My life is definitely very much uh, an inspiration for the female relationships in this book. And while my my mother-in-law and my mother, I love to say, are as different as two women can be, and they've both been incredible support systems. So while I don't, you know, my mother-in-law is a very traditional Indian woman who has never worn anything but a sari all her life, who has had absolutely no opportunities when compared with the opportunities I've had in my life. And yet, All this woman has done for me is say, you now can, and so you absolutely must, 
right? And I have seen nothing but complete acceptance and support from her when I'm as different from her as anyone could imagine a daughter-in-law being from her mother-in-law. And so this is very much the reality of my life. And while the texture of Ali and Bindu's uh, relationship and individual personalities is different, that is the sense that I think I see in my own life and I do see it in a lot of my friends' lives. And then the thing that really almost, you know, inspired me to go this direction, and I've done this with a lot of my other books, is that we're often, culture is, you know, telling us repeatedly that women pull each other down, that, oh, you know, women gossip, that you put two women in a place of power and they butt heads. And this has always felt like such a lie to me, because that is absolutely not what I see. Now, historically, if you look at it, you know, we've been put in situations where we are literally pitted against each other. We're pitted against each other in for years in, in Indian culture. And I think this somewhat, you know, going back a little bit more worked across all cultures. The only place we were given to prove ourselves was the home, the kitchen, you know, domestic um, goddessness <laughs> for, for lack of a better term. But but that was our battlefield. That's where we were put to prove our worth, right? And then as generationally, that became where we were fighting to prove ourselves. So it's literally a place where we are, you know, society puts us in these situations and then says, oh, look how you behave. But we didn't cause these problems. We've, you know, we've navigated them. And anytime that you put us in a situation where you take away these things, we flourish and we are kind of raise each other up. And that's the reality of it. And I did want to very much speak to this whole mother-in-law, daughter-in-law myth that's perpetuated, that somehow mothers-in-law and daughters-in-law are in constant conflict over this uh, prince of a son, <laughs> which is, you know, not not what's happened in in, in my life and uh, my mother and my sister-in-law, my mother and her mother-in-law, I always saw these really supportive, not, you know, not squeaky, um, unrealistic kind of caricatures, but these very real women trying to help the other because from a place of understanding, right? And and if you and I speak for long enough, that there is, we might be from different races, you know, ages, all of that, but there is this, um, you know, when I'm saying these things, you're nodding, you know, because you've seen this with your own relationships. And I think the feminine connection is a very powerful thing. And I think that almost all women I know have experienced the power of it and leverage it. Now, all we need to do is say that, you know, stop lying to us because the other part of it is not that simple and uh, not especially not that simple and certainly not that true. You know, I want to touch on something you said about society labeling, you know, how women are supposed to behave, act, you know, putting us in our place. And in your acknowledgments, you mentioned watching Bollywood films and recognizing that in those films, society labeled women in shades of purity and mixed it up with goodness. Can you talk to me about that and about what you saw in the Bollywood films? I have a line in one of my books uh, that is my honor is not buried in my crotch. And a lot of my storytelling, I think, comes from this place of dispelling the myths or the lies that I was told growing up, that I think a lot of women were told growing up. And, and I saw this, I remember, I mean, I couldn't even tell you how early, but back in the 
50s, you know, 50s and 60s, which were probably the earliest Bollywood films that I watched, there were these tropes and these stereotypes. And so there was the good girl, you know, who was always dressed in a sari, who was always covered up, who was filled with grace and bashfulness and modesty. And, um, you know, the male gaze was really, really clear to me very early on because these stories were being told by men. And uh, we were being defined and put into molds by men. But there was that clear distinction where there was the good girl and there was the vamp. And I remember thinking this again, really young, where I said, someone wants to see a woman in, you know, in a fitted cabaret mini dress, you know, with a glass and a cigarette in their hands. But they can't have the heroines do that. Every Bollywood film of that time had a vamp. And I'm putting this in quotation marks as I say it, who was dressed racily, you know, lots of <laughs> lots of eye makeup and, uh, and and the quintessential, you know, glass of wine in her hand and or whiskey and a, and a cigarette and never the twain could meet. Right. And it had to do with, I think, pleasuring a man's gaze that men needed both things, but you couldn't reconcile it in one thing. And that felt like roles we were given, even as we were being raised. We were told you can either be X or Y, now take your choice, because you know, on the X side lies happiness and family and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And on the Y side, you know, lies ruin. So it was kind of being shown to us in all these stories and then told to us at home. And I think that Bindu's story and Bindu's background for me was wanting to reconcile these two things. So I have often thought about the women, the actresses who played those vamps and about their real life, because how brave and badass do you have to be back then? when the whole world believed these myths to just be this person and enjoy it, right? And to own it. And so I wanted I wanted to kind of dig into a woman who was comfortable with her sexuality to that point that she didn't buy into this stuff that she was being told. And I think that's the thing some you know, women are naturally born with and then it's beaten out of them. And uh, it gets beaten out of Bindu, but not completely. And therein lies this whole story. I was going to ask about Bindu because she is absolutely complex and, you know, she's this, what did you say, domestic goddess? Is that how you <laughs> phrased it? But then, you know, th that an act of defiance in her youth and her actions as an older adult add surprising layers to her character as we get to know her. Can you talk to me about your approach to creating these multifaceted female characters? I don't think it's so much an approach that I could describe as seeing these these women as real people and mirroring what I see in the women around me in them. So to give you a simple example, my mother raising me in India in the 70s and the 80s and 90s with absolutely no examples of other mothers around her or nothing telling her that it was okay for us to own our bodies. It was okay for us to own our opinions. And she always did it fully. And I always wondered where that came from. Because here was this woman who, even back then, if we were being cat called, and that made us, you know, made me want, made me feel as it always does, ugly about my own self and my own body. Here was a woman who said, what other people say about you doesn't make you. You know, and yet she was a woman who in her life was incredibly traditional, incredibly domestic, but again, you know, when she was in a room full of men, 
other women I remember as a child, women didn't talk much, you know, they didn't express their opinions a whole lot. And my mom would immediately call out, you know, a man if he said something stupid. And she got, you know, she got a really bad uh, reputation as a, you know, as being outspoken and as being difficult because of that. But she never, that never stopped her. So she was all these things rolled up in one. So I could never describe if you, you know, until you meet her, I could never describe her to you fully. And I think that Bindu is that, that piece of it is, you know, she's constantly switching internally between this traditional Indian woman and this, you know, this progressive uh, woman who doesn't buy into any of the lies and yet takes comfort in the community, you know, and in her family and all. So that part of it works for her and she owns it. And the parts of it that don't work for her, she you know, casts off. And so there's a natural complexity, I think, to human beings. And I think that really that's what it is about for me, rather than, you know, creating a layered character. Because in all honesty, I think Bindu, Ali, Kali, or any of them aren't characters in my head. They're absolutely real people in my head. As I was reading the novel, it felt like there was a lot of focus on the eyes, you know, in just about every character, it seemed like that's where the truth could be found. Is that accurate? Or was I just seeing something there that wasn't there? And forgive all of the unintentional puns. <laughs> I think that seems like an eye problem <laughs> for me too. <laughs> Speaking of puns, that that's definitely seems like a Sonali problem, because I do put in my and, you know, I think all writers bring themselves to their books in a way that we can't put away, which is um, because there are explorations. And I feel like in my day-to-day life, I do put a lot of importance on what is happening in the eyes. You know, if I'm talking to you, that's the first thing I will notice. And you're constantly kind of searching for how you're being seen, you know, how you are seeing someone, how they're reacting to everything you're saying. I am, I am doing this with you <laughs> my, right now. My eyes are so, <laughs> they're blocked, sorry. <laughs> I still see it. You have incredibly kind eyes. And, you know, I think that it it matters. And so I think that that is, um, that's very much a gaze of how people interact. However, I will say that there is, an, and this is this is mentioned in the book, I do think that as a culture, Indians are, you know, have dramatic facial expressions, which is, and I say that a little, and of course, it's not a generalization, we're not a monolith. And so, so take, you know, I'm, I'm being a little facetious here, but we have this thing that I call Bollywood expressions. So if you watched a Bollywood film or an Indian TV show on mute, there's a lot of expressing going on. But if you went to a party at my house and you see how people talk and interact, we are very expressive with our face. And I think that I always joke about Bollywood eyes, which is, you know, even when my son went off to college, one of our friends sent me an old uh, Bollywood actress's meme where she was making the, the oh, my child's gone away eyes. <laughs> And, you know, so and then we have um, when my nephew in- introduced me to his new girlfriend, she, he, he said, I don't want you to make kabhi kushi kabhi gum eyes, which is this, <laughs> you know, which is this 
a hindi film where when you when you meet a young person who might end up being the spouse of another young person you love there are these particular dancing filled with you know maternal love eyes that you make so i think that a little bit of it is kind of having fun with that trope too is <laughs> that that the bollywood eyes <laughs> i love it so the vibrant years has you know, in spite of all of our laughter, it does have moments of seriousness, whether we're talking about mental health or discrimination. And, you know, it has a lot of laugh out loud moments, but I want to separate those two. So can you talk to me about the mental illness and the diversity higher and and all of the serious aspects that went into the book as well? So the the mental health, I, I feel like someone who writes South Asian stories. I almost feel like it is important if you are telling stories in which South Asian Americans see themselves in the stories where they are the protagonists. It almost feels to me like something I want to use my platform to do because for so long, this taboo has hurt so many people. And again, I don't think this is a uniquely South Asian problem, I think we've come as a society and as communities across the world really far in being okay with discussing things that we were not comfortable discussing, uh, things that have to do with our mental health. And in South Asian communities, this was very, very obvious. And uh, getting help, getting medication, or even just getting acknowledgement uh, for any of those struggles has been, I think, a hard fight for generations before now. And now I feel like we find ourselves in a place where when we start talking about it, this is a challenge being faced in every single home. And that makes it uh, something that we need to normalize really, really fast in conversation. And so how can you not write a story about contemporary people without shining a light or without digging into emotional and mental health issues that are at epidemic levels, you know, in our world today. So certainly that, and again, you know, the fact that a mental health issue or a mental health challenge is not all of you, it's one piece of you, like so many other things, right? And so Kali suffers from severe anxiety from a very young age. And I wanted to get into all the layers of what that means for, you know, a young girl growing up, probably as the only brown person in her school. There's so much feeding into that. And even with a really supportive set of parents, there's so many, um, so many slips between knowing what the right way to handle that is. But I think what I wanted to show in story is the, the need to even make the effort. Right. So I think it's a very, very important uh, thing for me personally to talk about in a real way, again, in not making the story about that. Not that there's anything wrong with this, you know, stories that are about that, but in the fact that that is one piece of our very multidimensional lives. So for sure, that I think is, um, you know, is a thing that I will always continue to talk about. As for the other question was the diverse. Oh, well, you know, I, <laughs> 10 years ago is when I started trying to publish my book. So again, I feel like Ali is as close to an autobiographical character as I have ever written. So there are a lot of challenges in her life that are very, very close to my own experience. And as someone who's, uh, you know, when, when I 10 years ago took my books out, there was literal blankness on faces of the people I was pitching these stories to. 
we weren't seeing south asian characters or really characters of color or any characters that weren't you know white and heterosexual at the centers of stories so this whole um breaking of the glass ceiling or cracking of the wall or whatever it is that you know we we're we're seeing cracks in this wall now we have a ways to go but the world today is incredibly different from the world 10 years ago when you know when editors could look you straight in the eye and say you want to tell a story with two indian protagonists or two indian american protagonists can we change one of them to white this was a perfectly normal thing for a person to look you straight in the face and say today an editor would lose their job for saying it i hope but that has been a huge paradigm shift so what ali is dealing with is very much a reality of the lives of people who look like me and want things like me and so it's a, it's a, it's very natural for for me to be drawn to those conflicts and those stories now you know away from the serious back to the humorous i mean laugh out loud moments and i don't want to give any spoilers but you wrote about some pretty horrific first dates and you know they might seem outlandish but they sound somewhat similar to stories i have heard from friends so where did inspiration come for some of these i mean is there a nugget of truth in any of them <laughs> i hope not I think there are mountains of truth in there. Now, my um, my best friend, two of my best friends, and um, and my sister, three women that I am probably closest to in the world, are all single, <laughs> and at different levels in their singleness. And so I hear a lot of very grotesque tales about <laughs> about dates. So I think that that was certainly it. Like, how are we living in this world? And if you know anyone who who dates today, you've heard the stories, like you said, and they're completely, you know, the kind of thing that makes you say that um, truth is stranger than fiction. And so I, um, I will tell you, I had a blast writing those <laughs> scenes because, um, because you know, I had I had so much input. All you have to do, in fact, at one point I was like, I should just send an email out to all my readers and say, tell me your bad dates. I didn't do that. <laughs> but it is, you know, I mean, you could spend days laughing. So it was very fun for me to write those scenes. Uh, I think it's um, just writing comedy. Something about it is far, far harder <laughs> than writing emotion. But I had so much fun with it. And in fact, when I was editing, I would totally crack myself up. And my husband was like, are you really, you've read this before. Why are you laughing? Because I think that the world we live in is so absurd. That, you know, you have to laugh at it. And I think the dating scene is certainly a gift in, in terms of humor that keeps giving. So absolutely, it comes from um, all the stories I've heard, all the shoulder offering I have done. So yeah. This is not your first novel, but it is the first to be published by Mindy's Book Studio, which is a boutique story studio created by Mindy Kaling. What can you tell us about this new publishing imprint? And is the publishing process any different with Mindy's Studio than it has been with your prior books? So in terms of my own process of crafting the story and writing it, no. Uh, because my my novel was written when it went to uh, Mindy, who happened to be searching at that time for a project to kick off her publishing imprint. And so it was uh, one of those, you know, magical preparation meets opportunity type of things that people tell you about. 
and um and it's just dumb luck that this was the kind of this was the kind of mix of humor and emotion that we find in all mindy projects that was i think just a thing that i have always been a huge fan for this reason because i want to go to fiction and i want to go to any story to be able to safely feel my range of emotions right if i don't leave a story having cried and laughed then that's kind of you know not hit the mark for me and mindy does that incredibly well and i have tried very hard to do it in all of my novels and i think i have often analyzed you know the writings of mindy to see how she does it so well and um having said all of that when i wrote my book i had no idea that there was an imprint that she was looking to start so that was just you know being in the right place she was looking for something and this fit in really well with her vision um having said that from uh the moment that she picked it this has been an absolutely um you know fabulous ride uh, which i couldn't have um i mean i remember kind of if you had asked me what is what is the one thing i would want for my books i might have asked for this thing and so it's been an absolute dream that there are a team of incredibly professional women who have and i for the first time in my life i feel entirely taken care of and seen and you know and and i feel like i'm in very very good hands which i will tell you as a diversity author i hate that term in traditional publishing in new york publishing is a very rare thing to feel because you are mostly made to feel like we don't know where to put you um we don't know what to do with you oh my gosh how do we you know look at these sales and there's a lot of reticence almost and this whole oh we're doing this to look good rather than the story itself it's a very fraught uh, and complicated space to be in and i think that being with a publishing imprint that's helmed by another brown woman there's just something incredibly powerful about that for me do you have a hope for readers what they might take away from the vibrant years i just got an email this morning uh, from a reader who put together lines from the book that meant something to her and she sent me a paragraph of what she called was going to be her guiding motto paragraph and um and you know get, getting to read things like that are amazing and i think one of the lines she picked up was that i'm going to try to um to have my actions guided by what i want rather than what other people are thinking because there really is no jury but me and for me i think that you know i always think that if if a reader feels seen and if a reader feels like who they are is okay because so much in our lives make make us feel insufficient make us feel like we have to be trying harder that something is wrong with us and even for a moment while reading this book if you feel like i have the power to be who i am exactly the way the way i am because i am my own jury and if you have that moment of being seen uh that mo- moment of taking your own life into your hands i could ask for nothing more but i at least want you to you know ugly laugh and ugly cry <laughs> because i i feel like you will and and you know of course there's some potty humor in there and so you better ugly laugh and ugly cry but that's it i think it really is about empowerment and feeling seen 
The book is The Vibrant Years, Sonali Dave. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Beth. That was Sonali Dave, author of the book, The Vibrant Years, which was published by Mindy's Book Studio. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producer is Haley Krausen, and our marketing assistant is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.